0: Hello and welcome to the BSI Education Podcast with me Matthew Chiles. and me Alan Sellers. Hello Alan, how are you? I'm good thanks and how are you Matthew? I'm very well thank you. Now in these podcasts our aim is to bring you the stories behind standards and standardisation. In this episode we focus on the issue that in recent months has dominated all of our lives, not just in this country but around the world, Covid-19. The COVID nineteen pandemic has had a huge impact on people and communities, and we know that organisations are facing significant disruptions and challenges that they need to quickly manage and respond to. For
1: this episode, we welcome back our guests from episode three of the podcast, Sally Swingwood and Martin Cotton. Sally is Lead Standards Development Manager within the governance and resilience sector at BSI. Sally is responsible for the UK standards development and the UK contribution. To several international management standards. Martin is Group Technical Assurance and Quality Director at Lloyd's Register. He's their voice on occupational health and safety. Martin has been active in standards development since the 1990s. He currently chairs Technical Committee 283 for Health and Safety Management Systems.
0: Together, Sally and Martin describe how BSI is working with a range of experts to share best practice and provide practical steps. To support safe working for organizations large and small. We really enjoyed our conversation with Sally and Martin and we hope you do too. So in this episode of the podcast we are delighted to be joined once again by Sally Swindwood and Martin Cotton. Hello Sally, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Matthew. And hello Martin, how are you? I'm very well too, thank you. Really great to have you back. Uh, Sally, if I could turn to you first, can you tell us a, a little bit about your role at BSI?
2: I'm a lead standards development manager at BSI. I work on business improvement and on occupational health and safety management. So I look after the national committees um, for standards in those areas and I also manage the international committee for occupational health and safety management.
0: And Martin can you tell us a bit about Lloyd's Register and your role there?
3: Yes, sure. So I'm the Group Technical Assurance and Quality Director for Lloyd Register Group, which is a global organisation providing professional services uh, for engineering and technology with a particular focus on improving safety and increasing the performance of critical infrastructure. So my role there relates both to quality management and technical governance my activities in the world of standards are more focused in the area of occupational health and safety, an area I've been involved with for a while. Uh, and, and in that capacity, I chair the ISO technical committee responsible for OHS management.
1: Now in these podcasts, we're always keen to learn about the standards journey of our guests. So how did you get here? And what's your standards journey been? How about you, Savvy?
2: I've been working in standards for seven years now. I came here quite by accident through a series of odd turns and events um, and primarily, I guess, through some colleagues of mine who work at BSI who recognised that this was a world that I would thrive in. And they were right. I feel very lucky to be here. So I began in standards knowing very little but was thrown right in at the deep end working on ISO 9001 quality management systems, which is the world's biggest standard, and also in the initial development stages of ISO 45001, the first global occupational health and safety management standard.
1: Well,
3: wow, that sounds quite to uh, standards there. And how about you, Martin? Well, I've been involved in British Standards Committee for Occupational Health and Safety Management for a little over 20 years. I I got involved because I moved into a role within Lloyd's Register, which was to establish uh, the company's offering in relation to OHS management system certification. That was really the period in which uh, certification for OHS was first getting underway, um, and companies who had were familiar with that process for, for things like quality management and environmental management were taking a keen interest in having something equivalent for occupational health and safety. So in taking on that role within Lloyd's Register, it was suggested to me that it would be perhaps helpful and useful to me to get involved with the British Standards Committee, which itself had developed British guidance standards on OHS, which were being used as reference points and also because there was a debate going on about whether to propose the development of an ISO standard on OHS management systems. So I got involved to to contribute to that debate at that time and have remained on the committee ever since. Uh, I chaired it through the period when ISO 45001 was being developed And then moved across to chair the new ISO technical committee, which was established to uh, look after the OHS activities within ISO uh, going forward.
1: Thanks both. It sounds like you both have people that have suggested this space for you to be in and you haven't left yet. So they've done a good job there.
2: (laughs) Once you come in, Alan, you don't leave. (laughs) (laughs) It
0: grabs you. Now, obviously, COVID-19. Has had a huge impact on individuals and organisations, communities around the world. Um, from a BSI perspective, Sally, what's what's been BSI's response to COVID nineteen?
2: We've been very active in our response right from the beginning. Really, we had requests from government to assist. Initially, primarily with the ventilator challenge, as you are aware in the UK, we had a shortage of ventilators. Um, a lot of organisations were scrambling to build ventilators and distribute them at speed, often organisations that hadn't made these before. So part of the BSI response was to make standards freely available, and that included the ventilator standards, but also standards on personal protective equipment and on face masks, and we put a lot of guidance onto our website. Essentially, we put a package together of things that we thought would help organisations during this time specific requests for hygiene standards, for example, but also um, crisis management, continuity management, risk management, resilience. And we've also produced a lot of free webinars on these, which are still available on our website. Um, We've put together a white paper, I think that was working with the Scottish Government, Drawing on the experience and horizon scanning of working during the pandemic across lots of different sectors, including the CBI, which CIPD, construction, and then of course we developed the safe working guidance document. So, could you
0: tell us a bit more about the about the safe working guidance document?
2: The Safe Working Guidelines were really a response to the rather fragmented information that was coming out from government, from the WHO, from other places. As our knowledge of COVID-19 developed and as the risks changed and we became more aware of what was happening, what we intended with these guidelines was to produce a single space that people could go to To help them get back to work. Um, Obviously a lot of organisations had to cease operations very suddenly and this threw our economy into turmoil and then workers were also, and organisations, employers too, were very nervous about reopening because whilst the economic factors are very important, people also didn't want to put lives at risk so this is a generic set of guidelines it's uh, broadly applicable to any organization no matter what they do how big they are how small they are it reflects good trusted advice
0: how have they how have they been produced What, what sort of organizations have been involved in the process They've been
2: produced slightly differently to our usual way of working for standards, which, as I'm sure many people are aware, can take a very long time. Clearly, we didn't have a year or two to get these together. That wouldn't have been helpful to anyone. So they were produced by uh, internally. We developed a draft based on all of the available guidance, rules, knowledge at the time. This was in May. And then we put together an advisory group um, of experts from our BSI committees covering a broad range of people. Martin, uh, you're on the advisory group. Perhaps you'd like to say a little bit more about who was involved?
3: Yes, sure, Sally. I mean, I was very I think it's very striking how effective that mechanism has been. I was very happy to contribute, obviously, because of my involvement in the OH&S committee. But I've certainly been struck that within that relatively small group, and, and correct me if I've got the numbers wrong, but I'm guessing there must be uh, a dozen or so people who've been joining at most of those calls, there's a really real breadth of difference, different perspectives being brought to bear depending on the different areas of specialism um, that people have. So I've certainly learned a great deal myself on others' perspectives on the issue, and therefore it's highlighted to me some things that we're not, in my mind, particularly uh, as challenges which need to be reflected in the guidance. So I think the the power of the standards network has certainly been very evident in in, in BSI's ability to rapidly bring together a very diverse group of of, of inputs uh, from from the advisory group members.
0: With all of our uh, standards, they are open to public consultation as part of a, as part of a development process. Has has there been a public consultation for for the guidance too on, in uh, on safe working?
2: Absolutely, this has been a critical part of our development, particularly as we have been working at speed and without the usual uh, frequent but long iterations and consultations with different levels of experts and then the general public. So we went from initial draft to publication of the first version in, I believe it was 15 days. And on day 15, it went out for public consultation. That initial public consultation was then used, the comments that we received were then used to produce the second version. And on the day that that published, it went back out for public consultation it's still in consultation now it closes in a couple of days and we will use the comments on that consultation to produce the third version.
0: be worth it um, just expanding a bit Sally on on the difference between guidance and a standard obviously this is being produced by BSI as the national standards body but what's what's the difference why is this guidance and not a standard?
2: Well you can have guidance standards so I think that's the first thing to uh, clarify people do get confused about that but we are not calling this a standard simply because it hasn't gone through the rigorous long process that we use to develop full standards so to call it a standard we must meet various criteria which due to the times involved in this we couldn't do however it has been written as a standard, it follows the same um, format as a standard, for example, but it is guidelines it's it's not requirements.
0: So you mentioned earlier that we have version two of, of the guidelines now what are the what are the main changes from version one to version two?
2: Version two is greatly expanded on version one down to the changing situation, our changing knowledge, and also the input we received from the comments from the public and experts in our committees and on our advisory group. So in version two, we have brand new clauses, for example, on working from home, on diversity, on accessibility, on the use of toilets. Um, Toilets has been a very hot topic because obviously they're fairly fundamental, but also uh, carry quite a degree of risk in terms of them being shared spaces and hygiene issues, Martin, uh, is there anything else you can think of that we have put in? Uh,
3: I think I think you touched on inclusion, didn't you, a second ago, Sally? But I think that was an important additional dimension that, that certainly I was very struck by, with was the recognition of some of the particular challenges that need to be uh, recognised and addressed with with these new ways of working. So whether that's the fact that with face masks and and all the other protection, in some cases visors, that can have quite an impact on people's ability to to communicate, to hear. So those who perhaps rely on a degree of lip reading uh, or have other um, problems with with, uh, hearing, will find that very difficult. There are people, of course, who depend on the use of um, support animals, whether that's guide dogs for the blind, as, as we tend to term it, um, or, or other uh, animals for hearing dogs and so on. The sense that you know we need to remember in, in our efforts to make everybody safe, that we don't also create great barriers uh, for particular groups by, by making it very difficult for, for them if we haven't uh, thought of their requirements uh, in advance.
2: We, we also included in version two specific guidance on how to deal with incidents of um, illness in the workplace, whether it's your workers or the public your customers, for example, Um, and what to do if there are outbreaks of COVID-19 in your organisation. I think one of the things we've stressed in version two that we perhaps did less of in version one is the need for a community spirit here, a supportive atmosphere, a transparent culture. Um, There is some stigma in some areas about potentially having COVID-19 and this can lead to people hiding symptoms which of course can lead to community outbreaks. So the guidance on that and when organisations should report incidents to the authorities I think is quite an important inclusion.
1: It sounds like there's a lot of work that's gone into that in a very short space of time to produce guidelines that sound very comprehensive. And I'm interested to note the difference between the speed at which these guidelines have been produced and, and, as you've commented, the pace at which standards are developed. And I'd like to know a bit more about that comparison. So for me, consensus is the thing that standards are always aiming to achieve. Is there something about consensus within these guidelines that is is less than what you might have in a standard?
2: Yes, in in as much as we are not putting this out for ballot to approve publication. However, our advisory group is our consensus building mechanism. So they will be revised. The guidelines will be revised at speed, taking the comments into account, distributed. To the advisory group. The advisory group will review them and then we will have a meeting to discuss any areas that are perhaps contentious or need further work. So we do still have the consensus building, but it's at a smaller scale necessarily because the more people you involve, the longer everything takes.
1: That's fascinating. It it sounds like an interesting process for developing a set of guidelines or, or maybe even a standard at a speed that those within the standards community would, would be surprised at, I think.
2: Yes, and I think it's opened our eyes in BSI as the UK's national standards body to the fact that we can work differently and that we can be flexible when, when there is a need to be flexible. So I think we will have learnt some good lessons out of this. I mean, this has literally been a drop everything else project. There was no time to work on anything else other than this to deliver at the pace that we did. But there are times when, of course, that's very useful.
1: So are these guidelines being proposed as a full standard?
2: Yes, they are. They're currently being balloted in the ISO technical committee for health and safety management that Martin and I manage together. Um, And we are hoping to have a two stage response to this, Martin, if you'd like to explain a little bit more.
0: What we're
3: proposing to do is to take the BSI uh, document. I guess it will be version three, or possibly even beyond that, by the time the work um, might commence. And take that as, as as the base document and starting point uh, for for development of an ISO document. Now, initially, we envisage publishing that as a so-called publicly available specification, a PAS. Um, published through ISO. Uh, and that again is a document uh, or a route through which documents can be published on a more fast track basis. And and therefore, that's achieved by perhaps having slightly lower uh, thresholds for the balloting processes and, and consensus building than, again, a full standard would require. But our thinking is that if we can publish something through that route relatively quickly, we could immediately move into the process, if you like, of then further developing it with further stakeholder input in order to enable it then to transition to being a full guidance standard at our ISO level. So that's the route that we're proposing to follow. Um, That's currently being Balloted uh, at the moment. Uh, and it will be an interesting challenge, I think. And you alluded to this earlier with your question, uh, Alan, about uh, it'll be an interesting challenge to, to see just how agile uh, and adept we can be with that mechanism in the ISO process. I think virtual working actually offers us some potential for more effective and faster working in some respects. I know initially we've perhaps all struggled with the idea that we can't meet in the way we've been familiar with. But actually, in in many respects, operating virtually through Zoom calls and so on can actually produce more focused and targeted meetings where you can really drive into specific issues and resolve them quite quite effectively. Uh, and, And so in some ways, there are advantages there for us.
0: Martin, I'm interested in, in timing. There, both Sally and yourself have have talked about how BSI and stakeholders have provided a rapid response to to a, uh, a fast moving situation. I suppose my question is why why propose why move to have an international standard now if if the guidelines are effective and you've moved from version one to version two to version three? Why at this point in in in, uh, in our response to COVID nineteen? Is an international standard important?
3: Well, I guess we should probably await the result of the current ballot, um, Matthew, in some respects, because that will tell us the answer to the question of whether, internationally, through that network of national standards bodies, of course, BSI being one, there is a consensus that it would be beneficial to have a document in the ISO space as a fully uh, international document or i suppose alternatively if people feel comfortable uh, to use the bsi document you know that that it's a very valuable document and there's already considerable international interest in it but in terms of the level of international participation that's really where there's an opportunity i think by moving into the iso space to Increase the participation from other countries, and therefore to to share experience more widely from a wider range of countries, all of whom uh, have somewhat different experiences and are on a somewhat different trajectory in their efforts uh, to, to to manage uh, the, the current uh, their response to the current pandemic. So I think that's probably the the main reason, why a differentiator, if you like, between the two processes. What we have heard quite clearly from uh, webinars that Sally and I have conducted are voices saying that of a, a document at international level Uh, would be useful. Certainly a group we spoke to, uh, quite a large group of uh, people who joined us for a a webinar that was jointly organised by ISO and UNIDO, there was quite a a, a, a real sense of strong views from that particular group that they would find it useful to see some activity in, in the ISO arena to help develop guidance. Because there are, of course, countries who are less well-equipped perhaps in in some ways to deal with the situation that they're facing and the opportunity to share experience with with and from others is is really valuable to them.
2: I think also it's pretty obvious from the news that in some countries the response to the pandemic has become very political. By producing international standard, and ISO standard to a degree I think it may help some countries and some organisations in countries and particularly those organisations that are working in multiple countries to have a non-political response, to have an agreed, internationally agreed set of guidelines and good practice Um, may take some of the heat out of the politics around all
0: of this response. So obviously, um, COVID-19 and global pandemics are once in a hundred year Uh, occurrences so why why develop a standard around a response to a pandemic?
2: Well I think there's several uh, reasons for this one of which is that science seems to be indicating that pandemics may become more frequent so it may be that we need to be better prepared in the long run than we were this time and I think the other part of that is that we do not know how long this particular situation will be with us and how long we're going to have to deal with COVID-19 itself. And then, of course, the other side of that is whether we are in a pandemic situation or not, we are always in a situation where there are communicable
0: diseases. So in terms of, of next steps then, where, where are we in the, in the process from the guidance becoming a full standard?
3: Our current position is that the BSI uh, document will undergo one further iteration in parallel with the the ongoing ballot regarding the the initiation of a piece of work in ISO, uh, Matthew. So uh, I think Sally mentioned earlier that there's a current consultation, public consultation in progress on the BSI uh, document. Uh, version two. That consultation closes in a couple of days' time and will lead to the publication of version three. And then subject to uh, a successful outcome with the ballot at ISO, effectively, that's when the focus will switch across to the development of an ISO document, initially an ISO PAS, publicly available specification. Um, The ballot I've just referred to closes on the 11th of September. Now that ballot has asked National Standards bodies not just to answer the question, do you approve this development, do you wish it to proceed, but also to submit comments, i.e. those detailed technical comments on the document uh, that they've been circulated, which is the BSI document, so that there will be an initial input immediately to enable the work to proceed. So if we get the green light at the 11th of September, then we will start uh, an immediate piece of work to uh, review and incorporate those comments into another iteration of the document that will then be issued through national standards bodies internationally uh, for an eight week consultation. And if we can stick to that quite ambitious timeframe, we can in theory and hopefully will publish that pas around the end of this calendar year, and then of course we would begin a further cycle along that journey to create a, a full international standard
0: so obviously developing standards or, or guidance and standards in this in this at this time has been a very uh, unique experience, I suppose Martin, from your perspective what is what what have you learned from from this experience?
3: I think for me, I've been really struck, Matthew, by the uh, the power of those diverse um, stakeholder inputs uh, and the speed, which in fact you can then work at if you've got, you know, can, can marshal those resources together. And and I think I, I've also been very conscious related to that, that we're very much on a journey of, of, of learning here in that everybody's focus two, three months ago was on very immediate and short-term actions that needed to be taken. And and gradually, we're broadening our horizons collectively and beginning to see more and more things which also need to be factored in. And that's, I think, very much reflected in, in what we've uh, described earlier in terms of the addition of new content into the BSI guidelines with each successive iteration. So, you know, just one example of that, I think, is that, you know, we've, we've moved now to so many organizations now making so much more use of their websites um, to engage with with customers, stakeholders, and other people. And again, back to that point of inclusion, we've got to remember to think about the aspect of making sure that that website design is in a form that's accessible to everybody and so all those issues around, you know, the, the, the visual presentation, the colours on the screen, um, the contrast, all of that, which we would perhaps normally think about, but perhaps haven't been able to think about in, in the haste to uh, adapt our organization's ways of working to, to the pandemic situation, we do need to address those, because otherwise we are excluding people without perhaps even realising it.
0: And Sally, from a, from a national standards body perspective, the key, key learnings?
3: I think, again, it
2: comes back to flexibility, to agility, that just because we've always done something in a certain way and have always said, no, we can't do that, doesn't mean it's true. The world has changed very rapidly for everybody this year. And we have achieved things that we would previously have said were impossible, and we have put Processes in place, we've put safeguards in place that we would never have thought of before. And I think from a business point of view, one of the key learnings should be that being agile in responding to the current situation is absolutely critical because that situation keeps changing and it will keep changing. Um, So I think not just from a standards point of view, but from an economic operation point of view staying flexible, staying agile, and staying on top of the movable world that we live in is key to success.
3: I think from an OHS perspective, Sally, you'd probably agree with me that I think one of the good things which we might look back on this period uh, and, and, and see us as a moment of progress is that I think many more organisations now have a great deal more uh, sensitivity to and interest in the issue of uh, workers' mental health and well-being.
2: Absolutely. We are seeing now that the pandemic has had a huge effect on people's mental health and well-being and organizations are still learning how to deal with that, how to support their workers in the best possible way. Individuals are still working out how to deal with that, but as Martin says, hopefully a positive that will come out of this is for the long term everybody will understand that your mental health is just as important as your physical health.
3: And of course, that makes it very timely that one of the activities in the ISO uh, technical committee at the moment is indeed the development of ISO 45003, which is guidance very much on those all those issues around uh,
0: mental health and safety. Before we finish, I just want to say that to find out more about BSI education, go to www bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the theme of this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIedPod. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions or ideas for future podcasts, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We welcome your feedback. All that remains is for me to say. Thank you, Sally.
2: Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Alan.
0: Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Sally. And thank you, Martin. And of course, to thank you all for listening.